Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Based on true events, The Connection stars Jean Dujardin as a cop who risks his life to try and bring down The French Connection, the most ruthless drug smuggling operation in history. It's now playing on demand. Coming soon is Finders Keepers, a hilarious documentary about how a severed human foot was discovered in a grill bought at an auction. The story only gets stranger from there. Watch it on demand starting October 2nd, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. In this episode, Allison and I talk about a movie that critic Robin Wood called, quote, the greatest film about race ever made in Hollywood, and that fellow film critic Roger Ebert once called, quote, racist trash. That's Richard Fleischer's 1975 film, Mandingo. And since it's fall festival season, Matt and I have been busy with the Toronto International Film Festival, the New York Film Festival, and Fantastic Fest. So instead of our usual cue shot segment, we'll be setting the streaming movies aside this episode to talk about some of the best, or at least the most interesting movies we've gotten to see. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. And Matt, you are up this time. What are your picks? I am. First, we should say that while these movies, some of them are not currently available on streaming, almost all of them will be pretty soon. I mean, there'll be some bigger movies to talk about, but a lot of these movies, they're sort of the, the home that they are inevitably find is VOD and streaming and stuff like that. So a lot of these movies will be coming sooner rather than later, don't you think? Sure. But, you know, I feel like a lot of the, certainly the Toronto Film Festival is a place where some of the bigger movies of the fall come out and we'll be, we'll be touching on some of those and those are going to go to theaters first. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, uh, to get back to opening break, our first pick is a movie that you actually mentioned in our uh, in our introduction right at the top of the show, but it's a film I liked so much that I really wanted to highlight it a little bit more and really recommend it to our listeners. It is a film called Finders Keepers. It is directed by two gentlemen, Brian Carberry and J. Clay Tweel. It's available on VOD starting on October 2nd, 
And this is a film that, yes, could be summarized, as you did earlier, by saying it is a hilarious documentary about how a severed human foot is discovered in a grill bought at an auction. But it it, it goes deeper than that, and, and, and uh, I guess I'll explain a little bit. Basically, this foot um, was lost by this guy named John Wood in a plane crash, lost in the sense that it was injured and had to be amputated, not lost as in he physically lost it um but through a a a, a series of circumstances that i would i will leave listeners to discover when they watch the film this the remains the the mummified or preserved remains of this leg wind up in in a like a barbecue smoker and then the smoker or the grill is put inside a storage unit and then the storage unit, the payments on it are not kept up by Mr. John Wood. So the storage unit is auctioned, and this guy, Shannon Wisnant, uh, discovers – he buys the storage unit, he buys the smoker, and discovers the leg inside. And then once he has it, uh, he refuses to give it back, basically. And so the documentary is about this crazy story of these two guys – uh, who are both, you know, the movie is set in the South and they have very thick accents. And, and so uh, superficially, at first glance, these guys look like crazy rednecks who are, you know, fighting over this, this literally this like hideous, uh, gnarled uh, piece of rotting flesh. And you go, why would anyone want this thing? And yet these two men refuse to uh, let it go and let the other person uh, have this thing. What's the problem there? I got a human foot. Have a what? A human foot. And this plum nasty got me grossed out. I'd seen the grill and ended up buying it. And I opened the grill up. And there's a foot, you know, five toes and five toenails. I decided to keep it. The Smoker Grill is now a tourist attraction. I can't believe. I mean, who is this guy? That's my leg. He lost his leg three years ago, and that's just one hurdle life has thrown at him. I've been shot, run over by a state dump truck, electrocuted. I've been through a lot. An unbelievable character, isn't he? A gentleman told me today I was a household name in Hollywood, California. Everybody around here knows him as a footman. Some folks just call me foot for short. It is a freak show, no question. It's a funny story, but it's born of tragedy. Um, but what's really interesting about the movie is that the, the setup and sort of the comedy, that's the beginning of the movie. Uh, the first, I would say the first 30 to 40 minutes, and it's very funny. Um, but after that, it really starts to go deeper, and you get to learn who these guys are, John and Shannon. And uh, the story takes on some surprising dimensions and some surprising... Uh, kind of poignance. The, I, I found myself getting really wrapped up in these guys, in their lives, in, in, their, uh, in their desperate need to uh, possess this foot for very different but very valid uh, reasons once they explain them. And uh, I have to say, I found myself very surprised, pleasantly surprised by how much I really related to this thing. It, it it sounds like a goofy, you know, like a reality television show. Uh, and there's a lot of sort of reality TV shows about Southern, you know, uh, rural Southern life and rednecks. It's like a huge subgenre of reality TV now. And this sort of takes that and sort of it goes beyond that. It's sort of actually part of it is is a sort of questioning why we as a society are so drawn to these kind of stories of these characters from the south 
uh, ones that where inevitably the characters end up looking kind of, I don't want to say dumb or dopey, but just, I don't know, that their, their values seem so different than ours. So it'll, it'll, it'll make you, it will make you laugh, but it'll, I think it'll make you think as well. I was very impressed by this film. I think it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival this year, and it is now or shortly available on VOD. It's called Finders Keepers. Have you seen that one, Allison? I have. I actually saw it at Sundance, and I liked it a lot. Yeah, oh. it's, it, it surprises you, doesn't it? It does. It, it reminded me, even though it's it's a very different film but it does feel a little bit in the vein of the king of kong yes or uh, you know it's it's kind of superficially a pop documentary but it does find a lot of emotional depth in characters who initially seem like they're there to be sources of comedy yes and i do think that uh, shannon shannon wisdom a moment when he talks about cameras if you know the one i'm talking about is really i I thought this really tragic and poignant kind of confession yeah that really stuck with me yeah it i i completely agree yes and uh yeah the uh, the king of Kong comparison is one that i thought of as well and i think that's a totally uh totally totally right on the money it definitely feels like that if you if you liked king of kong and you enjoy stories about uh you know severed body parts this uh this this film merges those two things very nicely so finders keepers Available on VOD on October 2nd. Very quickly, two more picks here. First up, available on October 9th, it's Knock Knock. This is the new film from horror director Eli Roth. And it's of particular interest to me because of its star, who is Allison. Keanu Reeves. That's right. Keanu Reeves in a horror film by Eli Roth. I will give you the plot description. When a devoted husband and father is left alone for the weekend, two stranded young women unexpectedly knock on his door for help. What starts out as a kind gesture results in a dangerous seduction and a deadly game of cat and mouse. Did you see this one at Sundance? I did not. Okay. And I heard interesting things across the board about <laughs> it. I am curious, certainly. Uh, I'm very curious about this one as well. So that's Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves and Eli Roth. What a combo. That's available on VOD on October 9th. And finally, now available on VOD, is a film called Ashby, A-S-H-B-Y. I will read you the plot description from the Movies on Demand website. Ed Wallace, played by Nat Wolf, moves to a new town with his single mom, played by Sarah Silverman, and needs help fitting in. Brainier than his peers, Ed figures playing football might be a good way to make friends. And then I read some other plot descriptions which described more of the story, but I'm thinking maybe perhaps that might get into a little bit of spoiler territory, so I'm going to leave that out. But I will say that the cast also includes Mickey Rourke and Emma Roberts. So you have Nat Wolf, who is a guy I I really like, a a young uh, actor who I think is very interesting, doing some interesting uh, films lately. Uh, Emma Roberts, another one I like, and then Mickey Rourke and Sarah Silverman. It's a very interesting cast, so... Uh, that's what caught my, my my eye on this one. So that's what I'm. Uh, that's why I'm interested in that one. I'm curious to check that one out as well. That is Ashby, and that is available now on VOD. All the shocking realism, all the magnificence and depravity. In Africa, our people born free. That's right, free men. Not slaves. On each episode of Film Spotting SVU, we give you the chance to choose our main review by voting on one of three options. 
This time around, we had three very varied choices. The controversial 1975 film Mandingo, John Magary's directorial debut The Mend with Josh Lucas, and Alex Gibney's documentary Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine. And Mandingo, a little surprisingly to me, ended up beating the two more recent films with 45% of the vote. Mandingo is adapted from a novel by Kyle Onstott that was a bestseller, but that even Ralph Serp, one of the movie's producers, referred to as hack work. The movie was produced by Dino De Laurentiis and directed by Richard Fleischer, a man maybe better known for being both prolific and versatile than for having one singular vision in his career. Uh, He directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Tora, 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 Soylent Green, and Conan the Destroyer, among many others. The film stars James Mason as the aging Warren Maxwell, head of a rundown plantation called Falconhurst. Perry King plays his son and heir, Hammond. Susan George is Ham- the reluctant Hammond's eventual wife, Blanche. Brenda Sykes is Ellen, the slave Hammond prefers to his wife. And boxer Ken Norton is Mead, a slave from the apparently sought-after ethnic group of the title, who Hammond arranges to have fight other slaves for entertainment. Uh, Mandingo was critically pummeled at the time of its release, but uh, was a box office hit it's acquired this reputation as a kind of so good, so bad it's good. It's acquired the reputation as a kind of so bad it's good disaster, uh, but in more recent years has gotten reappraised by critics like Dave Kerr at the New York Times and Jonathan Rosenbaum, who wrote in the Chicago Reader that, quote, apart from this film and Charles Burnett's recent Night John, it's doubtful whether many more insightful and penetrating movies about American slavery exist. But it remains divisive, uh, so much so that listener David Enna uh, sent us at least two notes trying to save us from ourselves and adding that, um, in his words, if you are forced to review this crap by your incredible minor league move, you can at least mention that it was a groundbreaking film in showing male nudity, a white penis, who knew we had them? So thank you, David. Um, Quentin Tarantino, meanwhile, has touted Mandingo as the rare instance of a major studio making an exploitation film. And he lifted from it actually pretty heavily uh, in making Django Unchained. So Matt, having seen the film, would you say it falls into one of these categories of either racist trash, camp classic, or underappreciated historical work? Or is it not so simple? Oh, that is a good question, and I appreciate that you left me the easy out of saying it's not so simple because that was uh, sort of sort of how I felt about it. Um, I, yeah, I had a, I, I'm honestly uh, I'm still not entirely sure what what I thought of this movie. It is a it is a, a fascinating thing to watch. Um, there are times where it does feel like an exploitation film and, and feel a little bit, you know, sort of. Uh, gross or icky or you know just off-putting um, in the way that it's trying to use titillation. But then there are other times where it seems very clearly to be using sort of the language of an exploitation film to sort of um, kind of comment on the tropes of exploitation cinema and also on the sort of exploitative nature of of slavery. That slavery was in a sense the ultimate exploitation and that um, what what other way to uh, to to approach it to comment on it 
to investigate it than with a sort of cinematic act of, of exploitation. And there were parts of the movie that I did think were pretty um, fascinating, and there were, uh, there were parts of it that really I think I respected a great deal. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time saying I would recommend the film. I have a hard time saying I was – you know, it's like I, I, I wasn't quite like outraged enough to have a very strong like – negative reaction and i wasn't so overwhelmed by the sheer audacity and brilliance having read some of these um reviews by people like dave kerr a critic i really like and respect and uh, i haven't read jonathan rosenbaum's piece but i have some others that i read including some that were exceptionally well written um that really argued in favor of it and i guess i just didn't have that strong of a reaction to it that way either i i, I I mean, I'm sort of glad that I saw it, but I, I, I don't know. It, it, there are things about it that stuck with me, but as a whole, I'm not sure it will. What, what about yourself? Well, the thing that I appreciated about it is the way in which it so obviously wanted to blow up, you know, the romanticism of something like Gone with the Wind, right. which it, you know, de- deliberately draws a line to in its poster, mm. you know, which instead of having, you know, Scarlett O'Hara and uh, Rhett Butler has the two kind of, you know, uh, unbalanced uh, multiracial couplings. Racially mixed, yeah. Like us in the same kind of swooning embrace. Mm -hmm. And it very much digs into any, you know, uh, sentimental... Uh, versions of Antebellum South that have been put on screen. The plantation that it shows is this creepy kind of moldering place. You know, the uh, the white characters are all kind of superstitious and uh, prone to incest, you know, which they also inflict on two of the slave characters. Mm-hmm. Um, its black characters are despairing and angry, it, it, it no, you know, there's no part of it that is romantic uh, about the idea of what the South was like when slavery was widespread. It, and, and I think there's something about the firmness with which it approaches that that I appreciate. But I do agree. And I think the thing that's so uneasy about it is that it is it's it is very titillated by a lot of the things that it depicts, right? Um, particularly the ways in which, uh, you know, the slaves of both genders are used as just kind of sexually available mm-hmm. to, to their owners, you know, uh, but I mean, even there's a scene in which, uh, you know, someone is whipped and the way that that shot is like, is it, 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 the, the kind of, it is just uncomfortably, I don't know. I don't know if it's quite sexual, but it's certainly not the way that I think we would feel comfortable about that, the way that that's shot today. Right. Um, you know, the scene in which Blanche orders Mead into her bed is like clearly very kind of like uh, entranced with the idea of 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 them together. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that said, I think that it's depictions of like of slavery as sheerly horrific are on a level that I don't really remember seeing until we get up into recent years and something's like something like 12 years a slave and Django Unchained. Right. Both of which actually have some similarities, uh, kind of plot wise, you know, in like, or in terms of characters, uh, at, at various moments, uh, with this film. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and there, actually, it's funny that you men- mentioned that because you know, and, and hist- like historically, you know, film depictions of of slavery and racism. Because having uh, really still on my way back from uh, Fantastic Fest, there was a repertory screening at the festival, which I didn't get to see, unfortunately, but of a film that's, you know, has an even worse reputation uh, than Mandingo does called Farewell Uncle Tom or Goodbye Uncle Tom, this Italian film um, by these Italian filmmakers who are famous for like sort of doing all the Mondo documentaries. And they made this bizarre and notoriously graphic sort of film about the degrading sort of life of of uh, of American slaves, um, and they they showed a, a, like a vintage print of it at the uh, at the festival, billing it as you know the most offensive movie of all time or the most notorious film of all time or something like that. Um, and I didn't get a chance to see it, but having just watched this, it I was really curious to see uh, you know how how truly how offensive or how horrible. Um, that movie was and comparing it to this, I do a hundred percent agree with you that one of the strengths of the movie is its depiction of this uh, this this plantation Falconhurst and the way that it it 's not even ugly in the way you know so many movies these days when they depict something ugly or scary or horrific you know it 's so artfully done that there 's something almost beautiful about it. Um, there's nothing beautiful about this place. It is dingy. It is run down. It it looks you know like the grass looks like it has di- all all of it's dead or dying, you know it's like it, it really just seems like a place that is rotten to the core. Not you know the people um, are just sort of like an extension of this kind of this land that is just so poisoned. And um, I agree that was something I noticed as well and thought was um, pretty strong actually. And the other thing that we haven't mentioned that I thought was pretty interesting as well was the character of Hammond, who is the son of James Mason's plantation owner. And, and the, 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 the James Mason character is just sort of like purely and unholy evil, just dis, just despicable, you know, one of the most despicable characters you've ever seen in your life. And Hammond, his son, is initially shown to be sort of reticent. He seems like he doesn't like being a slave owner. He doesn't necessarily believe in slavery. Um, And it seems at first that he's going to be this character that, I don't know, you you get the sense that maybe he's going to have a crisis of of conscience uh, throughout the movie. Not knowing where it's going, not knowing the story, you sort of, having seen movies like this, you kind of expect him to in some way rebel against his father or rebel against the system, uh, perhaps not to be successful in that, but just that you, you think that's where he's going. And actually, Richard Fleischer kind of does the exact opposite, and or, or maybe not even the opposite, but he, he keeps kind of alternating, showing us these humanizing moments and then showing us these moments where he is arguably even worse than his father and really making us sort of like question ourselves and sort of like inviting us to identify with this character who seems at his core to be a decent guy who's perhaps been trapped by circumstances in a bad you know in and just sort of he's sort of caught up in the system that he can't control and then there are other moments where he is uh you know just absolutely despicable and it really 
throws you for a loop and makes you think about those earlier scenes where you sort of felt for him or empathized with him. Uh, I don't know about you, but I thought his character was was actually really interesting in the way that he was presented and, and portrayed. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a very good scene, a very disturbing scene in which uh, Ellen, who is the slave that he kind of buys for himself and has something resembling a relationship with, you know, he's kind of tender with her. He he singles her out and tries to treat her uh, as kind of like special. But at the same time, when she asks, uh, when she gets pregnant and asks if the child that they, you know, their child um, can be freed, he gets very upset. You know, he's like, why would you want, do you want to be free? Why would you want to be free? And I, I think the movie really lulls you into this idea that, oh, he's, he's, yeah, he's nicer than, say, his father or some of the other characters we see who are truly awful. But at the same time, anything that could unsettle his idea of uh, his place in the power structure, right, is really, is, is entirely troublesome to him. He doesn't want to consider it. The idea that this woman who he bought and, you know, has given no that he he's having this kind of weird caricature of a romance with might actually not choose to be with him given the opportunity is something he doesn't want to consider. Right. You know, and I think you see that as well. You, you know, Susan George has kind of her performance in this has gotten a lot of attention because it's it's at times very over the top. Right. But I think that she finds a certain amount of tragedy in her character as well, who is you know, has very little options and who, uh, and who isn't a virgin when she gets married and is treated very badly for that. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't in turn treat, treat other people terribly, mm-hmm. you know, that there is no sense that there's no, there's no sense that, uh, that creates any sense of unification or empathy in these, you know, right. that, that, that there's no kind of understanding given because you're treated badly that in any way you, you find empathy for those that you then turn around and treat badly. Right. No, it's a, it's a, it's just a, it's a, you know, eye for an eye, dog eat dog world. It's just, it's pretty bleak. <laughs> it is not, uh, it's not a, it's not a fun, uh, film by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, you know Susan George. She plays uh, she plays Blanche, who becomes Hammond, the the sort of younger plantation owner's wife. Who, as you said, she it turns out that she's not a a virgin when they get married, and that like basically destroys their marriage basically as soon as it starts and causes all this friction and all these problems. Uh, I did think her performance was a little over a little overdone, a little overbaked, and. Um, I mean, in fa- I mean, in fairness to her, James Mason's performance is pretty pretty broad too. <laughs> but um, I don't know why. I maybe he's just you know. Well, he, hers is I think like wilder. It's, it goes all over the place. There yeah. are times where she does things that are just like really out there, and then there are other times where I feel like she modulates it in a way that works. Right. But it is definitely like so erratic. Um, it's kind of hard to to figure out or kind of like figure out what parts of it. Uh, she was aiming for <laughs> right right yeah there's i would say that uh, sure her performance was certainly the one that worked the least for me and certainly was not not my favorite in the film though i think you 
rightly identify sort of the things that make her character interesting is the fact that she is, you know, th- through basically no fault of her own, she's sort of trapped and imprisoned by this disgusting system just just the same way everyone else is. You know, there's a, there's that sense that... You know, even the way the characters speak, right? That they have this—they they have their not just that they have southern accents, but they have this sort of like dialect, this really like kind of grammatically horror, horrible way of speaking. They're just—you know—it's they, their English is is not not great. It's really garbled and mangled, and and um, I don't know. You just get the sense of like this whole world that's fueled by sort of like hatred and ignorance, right? Well, it just. It- I think that the, something that the movie does very well is create a world that seems poisoned. Yes. You know, that something fundamentally wrong and something that we see exactly, you know, like we understand exactly what is fundamentally wrong is basically has created this like toxic, you know, this, this sense of toxicity that is seeping into all of the characters, uh, especially those in power, right. that has warped them on some fundamental level. Right, and the interesting thing about about that is that it, you know, like again, getting back to that character, like uh, like Hammond, who you know, you would hope you would not do the horrific things that he does in this movie. But on the other hand, you know, there are those moments where you sort of relate to him and feel like you you would you would hope that like if you were you know somewhere in this in, in a system like this you would feel guilty you would feel horrible and then you go well he's the character who recognizes these things are wrong and look what he does anyway and it makes you think to yourself well god if i was in this situation does that mean i would act the way he does and i think that really is a is a kind of a powerful and disturbing sort of thing that the movie confronts you with and i would hope the answer is no but i think it's interesting that the movie does that and and you know sort of forces you to confront that for yourself what doesn't work for me in terms of the sort of the exploitative nature of it is that i don't know there are times when i lost i wasn't sure where the critique was ending and and the exploitation was beginning you know or vice versa that uh sometimes it didn't really feel like fleischer was was critiquing quite as much and was more just kind of I don't know, was sort of like indulging in a little bit of exploitation, just some of the violence, some of the fights, the Mandingo fights. Um, some of some of the, the scene that you mentioned with like the the, the whipping, it just that the, that sometimes it, I was wondering where, you know, I don't know if it was from the producers, from the studio or whatever, if there was a pressure to try to, to, to make this into something resembling a more mainstream or more exploitation film. And to to maybe bury the critiques a little bit deeper, or to to move them to the sides, uh, it felt like that to me at times. I thought that was something that maybe even when I did recognize that there, it's not just a piece of whatever Ebert called it, racist trash, whatever it was. There were moments that I I felt like weren't very successful in terms of a, from a cri- critique or a criticism standpoint. Yeah, though I think that 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 the the most violent fight between Meade and I think Topaz is the mm-hmm. the name of the slave that he is he is matched up with and it's just one that goes on for a while and at a certain point Hammond tries to he thinks he's Meade is losing and tries to kind of stop the fight right. and you know you you feel this moment of like oh he's looking out for this he's looking out for Meade even if right. he's protecting his property essentially and then Meade keeps fighting and you sort of cheer for him, but then also he just he he commits this horrific act of violence 
Um, and there's really like no right side, you know, in, in that scenario. But I do think there is some skill to how it manipulates who you are cheering for in that, you know, I, I, I don't think that this movie is very precise. And, and I think that's part of why, you know, as we've mentioned, it's, there's uh, such a discomfort to it. But I do think that it, the way in which it unsettles your, your sympathies kind of momentarily, like from, from character to character in that sequence, uh, and a, a sequence that ends with a character dying who really uh, had no more kind of uh, choice in the matter, you know, than Meade did. Uh, I, I think there is something, there is something to that. That is Mandingo, and it is available for streaming on Netflix. As you can probably hear just from the sound of the podcast, although hopefully it's not too terrible or distracting, we are not in uh, our usual recording studio, a.k.a. my former office, uh, to record this episode because I am literally like still coming back from Fantastic Fest as we're recording this. And we were a little delayed because of the festival and we just we wanted to get this recorded so we can get this up as soon as possible. It's already going to probably be a day or two late, so... Um, we are recording this uh, as, as soon as we could, but we're separated. So first of all, just a little po- an apology for the sound quality of this episode. Hopefully it still sounds pretty good, as good as we can make it, certainly. Um, but we're going to talk about these festivals. It's uh, it's the fall festival season. It is in full swing. The Toronto Film Festival was uh, mid-September. And the New York Film Festival is just officially getting started. I just got back from Fantastic Fest, but the the press screenings for the New York Film Festival have been underway. Uh, so there's a lot going on, a lot of movies. We have seen quite a few, both of us, but we're also going to highlight a few that only one of us has seen. We're going to try to plow through as many movies as we can in the the span of a segment uh, that what we usually spend on cue shots, which is about 20 to 30 minutes. So we'll try to spend at least that much time and run through as many movies as we can in that time. And we're going to start with the movies we've both seen, and we're going to do this by their upcoming release date. So these are movies that uh, are coming out this year. They will be in contention for year-end awards, year-end top 10 lists. I suspect that they, some of these may appear on one or both of our own lists. Um, we're going to start with a film entitled Room. Allison, why don't you tell people about Room? This is not The Room. This no, is, just room. The room. Just Room. Well, Room is uh, coming out on October 16th in limited release and then going wider from that on November 6th. It is based on Emma Donahue's book of the same name, which you may be familiar with. It was, I think, a bestseller. Uh, she also adapted it um, Lenny Abrahamson directed it, but it stars Brie Larson as a woman who is living in a uh, tiny garden shed uh, where she's been held captive for years uh, with her son, played by Jacob Tremblay. 
you start, you, you understand this kind of slowly over the initial, uh, initial scenes because the film is uh, threaded through the point of view of her son who, uh, who doesn't understand, uh, whose name is Jack, and who doesn't really understand that there's a world outside. All he's ever known is this like 10 foot by 10 foot room. And, uh, you know, the movie features some very dark, obviously, scenarios. But I think that uh, it, it does kind of miraculously manage to to turn this into a film about kind of a mother and son and uh, the things that you do to keep going. Uh, Matt, what did you think of the performances in this one? I loved Brie Larson in this movie. Yeah, Brie Larson. uh, I was already a big fan of hers because I loved Short Term 12. That was my favorite movie of that year, whatever year that was, 2013, I want to say. So I was already, you know, on the Brie Larson bandwagon, but I'm hoping that this one converts even more people, brings them over, because she's fantastic in this. And the little boy is really great in this, too. Jacob Tremblay is his name, and I guess he is a, you know, like a child actor. He's been in a bunch of stuff. Not that I recognized him in the movie, but he is really, really great in the film as well. And there are some sequences that really are all carried on his back. There's at least two I can think of right off the top of my head where he is the focal point and uh, and Brie Larson's character is definitely secondary if at all involved. And he really, I thought he really carries the movie in a very impressive way. I thought, he, you know, t- that the two of them together were a very convincing mother and son. And uh, this movie really got to me. I mean, I thought it was... Very emotional. I thought the, the and I thought it was, you know, it it has uh, some really suspenseful parts as well, um, when they are trying to uh, figure out a way out of room, um, but it also is really about the characters and it never loses sight of that and and uh, it gets pretty pretty as our as our friends over at Film Spotting Original Recipe would say it gets pretty dusty in the theater at points in this one at least for me, there was a, a very large dust storm at the Princess of Wales Theater in Toronto, uh, that uh, apparently was localized around my seat because I was I was definitely getting choked up. The next one we have is Spotlight, which is opening on November sixth, and is about the Boston Globe's spotlight team, which is their investigative unit, and about their uh, their coverage of the kind of Catholic church in, in Massachusetts and the sex abuse scandal and the cover-up of uh, involving priests. And it uh, stars this true ensemble cast, such an ensemble cast that they're actually all going to be submitted for supporting actor. Uh, in the Oscars, apparently, I've seen it reported. So they're uh, going to say that again. They're going to all of them are going to be submitted as supporting actors. Weird. Yeah, but I, I think fair to how the movie sets it up. Yeah, yeah, I you guess know, so. so. I mean, I, if you had to, I would. You wouldn't say that uh, like Ruffalo wasn't like the lead. Oh, uh, you could say you could say just as much that Keaton is. Yeah, I suppose you could so. Say, uh, you know, but I, I, the movie, uh, which is directed by Thomas McCarthy, who uh, of you the know, Cobbler, 
of the cobbler uh, last year. That's what he prefers to be known as the director of the cobbler. definitely wants to be known as the director of the cobbler, you know, and also the station agent, the visitor, win-win. the cobbler. And the cobbler. So obviously was in need of a comeback (laughs) after last year and the cobbler. And this is more than a comeback. I think that this is uh, certainly going to be one of the films we're talking about at the end of the year. I enjoyed it a lot. But uh, just to run through the cast quickly, Mark Ruffalo... Rachel McAdams, Brian Darcy James, Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, Lee Schreiber, and Billy Crudup. And uh, it's, you know, I, I think the thing that I really enjoyed about this is that it's a movie about work. Mm. You know, it is a movie about the process of journalism and how kind of exciting that can be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, it, I wonder if we, maybe we, we overvalue it a little bit because it is about – it makes journalists look really good and important too. Like, And it is very much about the, the, um, the value of this sort of journalism, which is not the, – the antithesis of so much of our world of film writing and journalism, which is just about grind it out, churn it out, get as much content up as you can, you know. Uh, just write, 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 blog, 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 post, 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 like there's no time for anything. And here, the movie is about the necessity of the opposite of that, of spending a year or more on a single story if it's big enough and important enough. Um, But having said that, I do think of all the movies we're going to talk about here, to me, this is the most obvious, like, best picture contender. I would not shock me in the slightest if this is one of the handful of movies that become sort of the front runners, the ones that are really seriously up for the best picture award. Um, and it's it's really good. And it's the sort of movie that, you know, because we both saw this at the Toronto Film Festival, and it was a movie that not only did I really enjoy it, um, just watching it, like it really stood out in comparison to other movies and sort of exposed the kind of problems in other movies. Like I saw Spotlight the day after I saw Black Mass, which is the the Johnny Depp film where he plays Whitey Bulger, the the notorious Boston gangster. And and Spotlight is a movie that is set in Boston. It is in that world, and it just feels so much more authentic and real. The characters in Black Mass are talking with these outrageous, silly Boston accents. They sound so terrible. Benedict Cumberbatch, Joel Edgerton, good actors, fine actors, but clearly not prepared or qualified to be doing Boston accents. And and Spotlight, it's funny how few of the characters do Boston accents. It's almost as if they said, well, if we can't do them right, we're not even going to try. We're not going to embarrass ourselves. And you you appreciate that because the movie is is it about a serious important subject, so you really appreciate that. The other the other movie that I sort of had a, the opportunity to compare it to so in, in in close proximity was this movie called The Program, which is uh, the movie the biopic about Lance Armstrong, uh, which is a, a character who's also sort of brought down a scandal that's exposed by a crusading, muckraking journalist. And in that movie, the the newsrooms where this guy works, and for all I know, they're based on the real places, but they are, like, gleaming. They have these beautiful glass walls with, like, frosted words written on them, and they make it makes journalism look kind of sexy, fun, exciting, you know? Like, Spotlight makes it look like a job, an important job, but it's about the grind and about yeah. the 
compromises and about the, you know, fighting every day to get your opinion out there and to fact check and to convince your bosses that you shouldn't publish a smaller story so you can keep working on the bigger story and all these sorts of the minutia of this job that I just uh, not the kind of stuff you see often on screen and just so well done. And it is a comeback for Tom McCarthy to the point where you go, I want somebody to ask him what the hell happened with the cobbler? How did the, how does somebody who can make spotlight a movie that's so rich and fascinating be the same guy who made the cobbler? It boggles my mind. So one, obviously we both liked uh, spotlight on November 6th um, coming out. November 27th is the Danish girl which is a film starring uh, Eddie Redmayne as a character, uh, Lily Elby, who was one of the first recipients of uh, gender reassignment surgery. And Alicia Vikander stars as, uh, as the character's wife when she was a man, Einar Wegner. And uh, I mean, this is a movie that just seems made for acting awards do you think it deserves them Matt? yes i do um it it, and this was a movie that even you know before anyone saw it there was a you know a lot of discussion about whether you know eddie redmayne is the right person to play this part whether any man uh is the right person to play this part and i'm curious when the movie is released whether uh, some of that controversy will be, you know, sort of dissipated because I thought he and Alicia Vikander both gave very strong performances here. Uh, n- not a movie that I, uh, you know, I loved. Um, it is in some ways, you know, it's a biopic and in, in some ways it, it, it feels like one in the sort of and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened sort of way. Um, but I, it's a, it's a, another moving film and I thought it was interesting to compare to the theory of everything from last year, the uh, the Eddie Redmayne movie from last year, where it's a very a very similar sort of story about a this you know this this man at the center, but also his wife and their sort of their relationship and a marriage that you know sort of. Um, is put under this immense strain and and what happens to a marriage when it encounters one of these obstacles that is seemingly impossible to to ignore and i i have to say i think i would i would say i preferred the danish girl to the theory of everything mostly because i felt like the female character here alicia vikander's character the wife character i don't know i felt like she had more to do and I, I felt like I saw the movie and the the situation more from her perspective and and she didn't feel just sort of uh tacked on or just uh you know sort of present in the story she felt much more important to it to me did you agree with that yes I, I think that that uh she is great and that the character is written in a very interesting way she's kind of a bohemian who's ahead of her time and more kind of liberated and maybe broad-minded than than really you would expect and that really allows the story to to unfold in a lot of ways uh, because of her support of of this man she married in making a transition to female uh, I will say though that that I think can maybe understandably 
lead to its own complaints, which is that I, I think there's still a tendency uh, when we make movies about uh, trans characters and uh, and sometimes gay characters to still focus uh, on how they're seen by allies than necessarily on their own journey. And I, I did feel like Lily slash Einar felt remote to me a bit throughout this movie. Like the movie didn't quite have a grasp on the character in the same way it does on Gerda. Right. Well, if you're saying that the movie is seeing, you know, to some degree is seeing the story through her perspective, then Mm -hmm. I guess that makes a certain amount of sense because, you know, she's trying to understand uh, Einar uh, slash Lily and that, you know, that that's, it's difficult for her to understand it. So, I don't know, maybe some of that enigmatic nature is by design, perhaps. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it, this is the sort of movie that feels, uh, you know, sort of built to, to win Oscars, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. it It's, you know, it's directed by Tom Hooper. Uh, it did the King's Speech. It, and... Right. And it it's very sumptuous you know the the costuming is gorgeous yeah the period the, just the buildings the and the details yeah it's a it's a lovely uh film it, it makes being an artist look uh in the kind of early 20th century look really great <laughs> it <laughs> does you know money seeming to be no problem you can go to Paris for a while if you feel like it. For months or years, it I seems know. like. It looks it looks pretty spectacular, frankly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's The Danish Girl. When does that one come out? That one opens on November 27th. All right. And we have one more that we both seen and wanted to discuss. What would that yes. be? And that is Anomalisa, which opens in, I think, New York and L.A. on December 30th. So just squeaking in at the end of the year. Um, and then it will go on to, I'm sure, open wider from there. This is the long-awaited new film from Charlie Kaufman, who uh, directed it with Duke Johnson. It's uh, Duke Johnson's first film, but of course, Charlie Kaufman uh, did, you know, wrote films like Being John Malkovich and Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and wrote and directed Synecdoche, New York. Um, and I know we both love this movie. It's uh, it's a stop motion movie, and uh, I think that turns out to be pretty perfect for for Charlie Kaufman's sensibility. Yeah, for a guy who enjoys creating these worlds, and uh, I don't know, clearly has uh, enjoys. I mean, when you think about it, the char- what would the character from Synecdoche, New York, have done if he had become a stop motion animator? I was thinking of that as I was watching because I was fortunate enough to get to see this movie a second time at Fantastic Fest. And I know people uh, uh, saying I've seen this movie twice when very few people have even seen it once. It just makes me very hateable. And I I relate to that. Frankly, I would hate myself, too, if I wasn't me. But uh, that was something that crossed my mind the second time I saw it is what what would the uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman character uh, from Synecdoche, New York, what would he think about – what would he do with – with the stop motion animation medium, someone who is, you know, so desperate to capture all of life and it's, you know, sort of in its complexities, but having the, uh, you know, um, the medium of stop motion where you can sort of fine tune every last detail. It's sort of a control freak's dream come true, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And it also offers 
I mean, I don't, this is a, this is a small scale movie and I think it offers one or two like, like visual or visual concepts that I I don't want to kind of give away because they're really nice to describe, but I'm not, I don't understand really how it would have worked in live action. Yeah. Right. Uh, we don't want to say too much about why, but it sounds when you say that the story is about a you know a guy on a business trip, you know that sounds like it could be easily be done in live action. But when you see the movie, you'll understand why this really was the only way to do it, and why I mean I thought it, I still think that it is just a just an absolute masterpiece, um, and so powerful and moving and uh, having now seen it twice it certainly was not any less moving on second viewing and um i uh, there is some stuff about it that is that you really need to pay attention to, to while you're watching it you know it's it's there are mysterious things at work and so seeing it a second time i was really uh, fascinated to see sort of like once you know what's going on uh, watching it and sort of trying to piece together how it all works, you know, the equivalent of taking the uh, stop motion puppet apart, I guess, and looking at the little, whatever the internal mechanisms are and figuring out how to, uh, how, how it's all put together and how it's running, what's making it come to life. Um, it's, it's really, it's really pretty incredible with some really great animation, beautiful animation, um, and uh, great vocal performances too, including Tom Noonan great Tom Noonan performance. Yeah. And I, I think that it feels in some ways to me, and it's funny to say this about a movie that is all stop motion and therefore all done with puppets, but it feels like his Charlie Kaufman's most kind of grounded, you know, it's, it has, I think the least bit of, I don't know. I don't want to call it magical realism, but like it, it has, it, the least bit of like obvious weirdness beyond these ideas that we've brought up. Yeah. You know, it, there are a lot of ways in which it just feels like a very heartfelt, sometimes funny, but very kind of believable portrait of depression. Yeah. Depression, loneliness, a midlife crisis. Yeah, dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction, yeah. I think there's and, – and while there are some sort of, let's say, fantastical elements to it, a little bit, um, it's very – you know, it's, it's, it's very relatable and very – I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, it sticks to the ribs. This is, it, it, it's like this movie will not leave you alone once you see it, or at least it, it hasn't left me alone, that it's a movie that you keep thinking about and um, what it has to say about sort of life and uh, crazy journey that you're on. Uh, that, you know, this little, this little, uh, business trip this guy is on in some ways is sort of like, you know, the, the, the it's ever it's like everything. It's, it really kind of, the movie's only like 90 minutes long, but it really kind of encapsulates a lot. It covers a lot of ground, even in its, and even though it's a small story too, and it takes place almost entirely in this hotel. I don't know. It, it, it feels huge. You know what I mean? It's somehow it's this tiny little movie, 90 minutes, um, only three voice actors and a handful of characters, but somehow it just seems to like it just seems to s- capture something or a lot of somethings, and kind of um, put them up on screen in a way you haven't seen before. Uh, that that is Anomalisa. That one comes out right at the very end of the year from yep. from December thirtieth.
we're going to skip our usual new release roundup since we've basically done that a bit. We've covered a lot of recent uh, of releases that are coming to a theater near you soon. We're going to go right to Behind the Eight Ball, where each episode we bring you three releases that are new to streaming, two listener recommendations, and one uh, streaming selection selected randomly from our Netflix My Lists. Matt, you're going to go first. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. Okay, first up, one of my favorite movies of the year. I don't know where it will wind up on my top ten list, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it's going to be on there somewhere. It's The Duke of Burgundy, now streaming on Netflix from director Peter Strickland. Uh, folks may remember, remember that name. He was the guy who directed Barbarian Sound Studio. And that was a movie I was actually not all that wild about, but I love the Duke of Burgundy. I think we've mentioned it uh, on the show before, maybe in our VOD segment very briefly. It's about uh, these two women who live together in this very strange world, surreal world where there are literally no men, and they spend their days going through these very detailed rituals and also researching the habits of butterflies. It all sounds very strange, but in practice, all of this is all window dressing on what is ultimately a very relatable human story about the day-to-day realities of being in a long-term relationship and the kind of compromises that requires, but also the kind of understanding and love. And uh, it's a it's not a very graphic movie, although there, there's some sort of quote-unquote kinky sex going on, but it's, it's very funny in a very dry way. I just love this movie. I encourage people to check it out. The Duke of Burgundy on Netflix. Next up, new to Netflix on October 1st, so pretty much available to watch by the time everyone is listening to this, is On the Town, which is the classic Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly musical about three sailors played by Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and Jules Munchen, who have one weekend of shore leave in New York City and go off on a wild adventure. Uh, This is the famous movie where they sing New York, New York, It's a Hell of a Town, and one of my absolute favorite Hollywood musicals from the golden age of Hollywood. I'm particularly excited to rewatch this one because I just saw a revival of On the Town on Broadway, so it made me very eager to revisit the original film. The Broadway musical was, was good as well, so that's On the Town on Netflix. And finally, I wanted to give a shout-out to a show that I'm um, in the midst of watching. I just started watching, but uh, I think would be of great interest to SVU listeners, and you can get the entire thing on Amazon right now. I think it's something like $10 for the entire season, which is basically uh, a a buck an episode, because it's like 10 episodes. And the name of the show is The Chair, and it is a new filmmaking reality show from Chris Moore, the guy who started Project Greenlight with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, which is also back on TV now. And he's sort of splintered off to do his own thing. Instead of following one filmmaker, The Chair follows two different filmmakers with their own teams who are selected to make basically their own interpretation, their own version of identical material. They start from the same script, and then they diverge. They can make their own version. They can change things. They don't have to necessarily follow the exact, uh, you know, they're not just making the script. They make the script their own, and then they go into production. And I just started watching this on my trip to Austin. It was recommended to me by Dave Chen of the Slash Filmcast, and uh, it's a good recommendation. I'm passing that recommendation along to our listeners I don't want to say too much more because I'm still watching it, but uh, so far through the first three episodes, I, I'm very, very intrigued. And I appreciate the fact that unlike so many 
you know, reality competition shows on TV. This one does not feel like it is produced heavily, like it is written by producers or, you know, it feels pretty close to a documentary. You know, it feels certainly more real than a lot of the reality shows we get. So that is the chair. You can um, purchase that on Amazon. All right. Two listener recommendations. Our first one comes from Jordan B. Jordan B. writes, Hi, guys. You should check out this awesome documentary on Netflix. It's called This Ain't No Mouse Music. It's an amazing film about New Orleans musical history, Cajun, Creole, Zydeco, Delta Blues, and more. It is definitely worth checking out. That's from Jordan B. Thank you, Jordan. And next up, we have an email from Lindsay. Lindsay writes, Hi, guys. I wonder, do you keep track of the amount of films you see in a given year? I use Letterboxd, and it's been amazing in cataloging my film viewing and keeping me on track to meet my target goal of a 400-movie year in 2015. Uh, that's probably isn't too impressive, but day jobs, am I right? I think it's pretty damn impressive. It's yeah, more, that the, definitely beats me. Yeah, I, I, I think I've, I usually see about like 350, three to 300 to 350 is usually what I see in a year. And uh, I do use Letterbox as well. Um, my Letterbox account, I think, is uh, Super Pulse, I believe, is my name on Letterbox. If you would care to follow me there, Allison, you don't use Letterbox. I do not. It's a great website. If you if you do like to sort of obsessively keep track of everything you watch, which I do, um, it is a, it's a great great website. Letterboxed, l e t t e r b o x d dot com. Boxed without the. There. Anyway, back to Lindsay. Lindsay says, I want to recommend a near masterwork on a platform you guys don't ever talk about. Showtime Anytime. That's like HBO Go for Showtime. It's called Showtime Anytime. The film is 1992's Captain Ron with the often great Martin Short, the always perfect Kurt Russell. I'm slightly kidding about this being a masterwork, but it is a ton of fun. And Kurt Russell, I swear to God, should have won the Academy Award for his work as the titular captain ron rico he plays sweet confident moronic sleazy dim lazy and kind in ways few others could juggle he's a true artist and one of the great if not the greatest american actors of the last 25 years thanks that is from Lindsay. thank you Lindsay. and i i appreciate and echo your sentiment about the always underrated kurt russell all right and one from your my list you gave me number 20 and number 20 right now on my on my my list is Stretch. This is the film from Joe Carnahan, and the story behind it was that it was supposed to be distributed by Universal, I believe, and then they decided after, I guess, looking at the movie, they didn't like it or they didn't like its prospects in theaters, and they ultimately made the very unusual step of deciding not to release it at all, not even like a cursory release, nothing. It went straight to VOD, it went straight to home releasing different streaming sites, different online sites, and now it is available on Netflix. I'll read you the plot description. Limo, Limo Jackie Stretch has no idea what's in store for him when his gambling debt compels him to take on a job driving an eccentric billionaire. It stars Patrick Wilson. Have you seen it, Allison? I have not seen it. Yeah, I, I'm curious, but uh, when a film distributor decides they're better off not putting a movie out. That's not always a good sign. So, uh, but I have it on my, my list. I'm curious. Maybe I will get around to it soon. Allison, are you ready to count down your choices? I am ready. All right. Why don't you start with three new releases? Okay. First up, new to Netflix is about Ellie. This is Asgard for Hardy's 2009 film, but it only just got a U.S. release this year. Two films that Fahardi made after that, A Separation and The Past, were released before it, 
And like those two, this one is really tremendous. It's about a group of upper middle class Iranians who are uh, away for a weekend at a beach house. Uh, They're mostly couples with the exception of one of their friends who's recently divorced and the woman um, that another of his friends, Ellie, has brought along with hopes of setting the two up. Um, but halfway through the film, Ellie, uh, the woman who's been, br- who's been brought in to be set up, mysteriously disappears. And then uh, all of these kind of cracks in these relationships are exposed. It's a thriller and it's a drama. And it's also a portrait of modern day Iran uh, as really only Farhadi can do. It's an excellent movie, and I, I really think it's worth checking out. I think Asghar Farhadi is one of my favorite filmmakers working today, and I'm always so impressed with his new films. And this is not a new film, but it's one I hadn't seen before, and it's 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 just as good. Um, so that's about Ellie on Netflix. Um, new to Fandor is We Go Way Back, uh, this is a 2006 film that's the directorial debut of Lynn Shelton, who has gone on to make Hump Day and My Sister's Sister and Laggies. And uh, this film is about an actress who feels like she's lost her sense of self and who ends up encountering her younger, more idealistic self after finding letters she wrote when she, to, when she was 13 years old. And I really like Lynn Shelton and... Uh, I'm looking forward to checking out this early work of hers. We go way back on Fandor. And finally, new to a, uh, a platform that we don't normally talk about because it has a 30-day expiration period, which I think, you know, for a podcast that people don't always listen to right away, makes it kind of hard for us to, to highlight any films because they'll be gone so quickly. But it is movie. And the film in question is Junun, J-U-N-U-N. And it is the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. It is a documentary that he's put together kind of on the side, little under an hour, or little uh, under an hour in length, uh, and one that he made with Johnny Greenwood um, of Radiohead, and who has worked on the soundtracks for There Will Be Blood and The Master and Inherent Vice. And uh, it's about how Greenwood goes to Rajasthan uh, to record his new album with the help of a group of musicians there. And this film is actually going to be having its world premiere at the New York Film Festival, I think in the upcoming week. And just hours afterwards, it's going to go live on Mubi. So that's a pretty neat, uh, a neat little setup to be able to see a movie so quickly after its premiere at a festival and see a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, so that is Junun, J-U-N-U-N, and that is going to be live on Mubi. All right. How about uh, two listener recommendations? First up, I have one from Susan from St. Paul who writes, a stream to consider is the film Tracks. It was in theaters for a minute, it seems, and now is streaming on Netflix. It is the story of Robin Davidson's 1,100-mile walk across Australia with her camels and dog in the 1970s. It is a far better, more beautifully told story than the more popular Wild. And forget the stupid poster of Mia W. and Adam D. The film is not a romance, except with this woman's passion for walking this journey in her 20s. It also touches on the racism in the country with the Aborigine people. The book is more vivid on the score, though. Gorgeous to watch quick and contemplative in tone it evokes the personality and endurance of the woman 
Mia's performance and resemblance to Robin in her 20s is amazing. Um, so that's tracks. Thank you for that, Susan. And a quick one from Edward in Dublin, who was inspired by our, our mental breakdown themed last episode to recommend Betty Blue. The movie, the poster, and the star, Beatrice Dahl, are icons of 1980s style and anguish. Um, and that one is available for rent. Thank you, Edward. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 18, which is a TV miniseries called Yordis. Um, this is the description. Yordis is a spin-off of the popular Danish TV series Rita, which I checked, and that is also on my my list. Um, it follows schoolteacher Yordis as she tries to put together a school play about bullying. And I'm not really sure how this ended up on my... <laughs> I was going to ask... Well, I mean, Rita is one that that Netflix has been kind of pushing on me, and so I added it. But I think it's mostly that a lot of the Scandinavian television that end up ends up on my radar and that I hear about are these dark crime dramas. And I was kind of curious about what uh, Danish comedy, especially a kind of female-centric one, would be like. So I added this one, and then it immediately popped up the spinoffs. All right, so... Someday, maybe, I'll check those out. But I, I like the idea that Netflix is bullying you into putting things you don't want on your my list. Yeah, well, you know, when it's that, that screen, like the, the kind of large tab that they have at the top, Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're pushing weirder and weirder stuff on me, and <laughs> well, I, I want myself keep, to blame. You keep a- adding them, so then that's, you're encouraging them, Allison. Yeah. This is, you know, this is like petting a dog like after it poops in the house. You're just rewarding bad behavior. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm helpless in the thrall of Netflix. Exactly. All right, well, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We've decided to go with three options that are all different documentaries, and even more than that, they are portraits. They are documentary portraits of three separate people. I have the first option. Our first option is a, I guess you could say it's a Netflix original documentary, and it's new to the series, uh, new to the service rather excuse me and it's called keith richards colon under the influence it's directed by morgan neville who is the director of the oscar winning documentary 20 feet from stardom so he's sort of working in a similar vein still making another music doc this one is about keith richards and the description from netflix says it takes us on a journey to discover the genesis of his sound as a songwriter, guitarist, and performer. And I believe part of it is that um, uh, Keith Richards, at the time of this documentary, is making a new album, his first solo album in, in quite some time, and Morgan Neville followed him on the making of that and also kind of chronicles, his, I guess, his life story as well. So that is Keith Richards, colon, Under the Influence. And that is option number one. That is available on Netflix. Option number two is also available on Netflix. It is called Iris, and it is one of the final films from the legendary documentarian Albert Maisel's. Um, it's a portrait of Iris Apfel, who has really the best kind of uh, job in the world, if you want to call it a job. She is a fashion icon. And at 93 years old, she is a larger-than-life character. Um, I will leave the kind of selling of this movie to Manola Dargis at the New York Times, who wrote, there are few better ways right now to spend 80 movie minutes than to see Iris, a delightful eye-opener about life, love, statement eyeglasses, 
bracelets the size of ti- tricycle tires, and the art of making the grandest of entrances. So that is Iris, and that is on Netflix. All right, and our third option is called That Guy, comma, Dick Miller. That is available on Hulu. It's directed by Elijah Drenner, and this is a documentary about the famed character actor Dick Miller. That guy. He's a that guy. That's why it's called That Guy Dick Miller, because he is one of the quintessential that guy actors. His IMDb page, Allison, currently lists 176 acting credits. 176. He has not been in, too shabby. Not too shabby. He has been in many films. He's famous for working with Roger Corman and then with working with some of the, let's say, the disciples of Corman or the people who got their start working for Corman, like Joe Dante. Uh, he is in like every single Joe Dante movie. He's in many Roger Corman movies. He's in many other movies as well. And it's a documentary about him and uh, someone who I certainly know and know of. I know him by name. I know him by face. I don't just say he's that guy. I know exactly who he is when I see him. But I don't know much about his life, and I would be curious to know more. So that is option number three, That Guy Dick Miller, which is currently available on Hulu. Well, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Um, you can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 5th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account which is at FilmSpottingSVU, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, October 13th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the documentary review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and you can also follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, and it's where we share lots more streaming suggestions, both from ourselves and from you guys, the SVU listeners. Don't forget also, if you're enjoying the show on iTunes, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Why not give us five stars on iTunes? It's always a lovely thing when you do that, and we appreciate it. Thank you in advance. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>